Well, we're going to continue in Matthew and finish the second half of chapter 1, so go ahead and turn there. And we're going to be looking at the sign of Emmanuel, the sign of Emmanuel. So let's begin reading in verse 18, picking up where Ben left off last week. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Well, I wonder when's the last time you've been studying or you've been reading in the scriptures and all of a sudden the word of the Lord came to you like a mighty rushing wind and just overwhelmed you and you, you saw something that you had never seen before and Whenever the Lord does that, when he speaks through his word because it's living and active, it always makes you go, oh! that's the feeling. That's the feeling when the word of the Lord comes. And that happened to me particularly this week as I was studying this. And that's my prayer for all of us as we sit here. Really, that's our objective. Every time we come to the word, it doesn't always happen in such a profound and particular way. Each time we open the word, sometimes the Lord stores things up and then builds and builds and builds and later it comes. But sometimes it does come that way. And it tends to come that way in particular and especially when there's a focus and emphasis on the Lord Jesus himself. So I'm praying that that's what the Lord will do for all of us today. This is such a wonderfully rich passage. Let's pray that the Lord would open our eyes and ears. Father, we thank you for this living and active word and all of the treasures that you've hidden therein. Every, at every turn and under every rock, every secret and hidden mystery that we uncover, by your spirit, you're seeking to teach us concerning the Lord Jesus and open our eyes to see him more clearly, to love him more dearly, and to walk in fullness of obedience by faith towards him and we pray that you would do that especially in a profound way this morning open our eyes to this glorious sign of Emmanuel God with us and speak to our hearts I pray that you would make us to marvel put us in awe and wonder at you because you're worthy and you're so much more glorious than we see we see through a dark glass and we pray that you would clear it up a little more this morning for us to see and to know and to savor Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So we've seen the genealogy of Christ from where he came, and now we turn to look to the way in which he was brought forth into the world, through whom he came, or in what fashion. And we're returning, as Matthew does, to the theme of Christ coming from the line of David, which Ben took us through significantly last week. This is a continual emphasis in in Matthew's gospel, the, the Davidic line of Christ. It's both in this section he emphasizes it and he continues to emphasize it throughout all the way to the end. So we see in here that Mary is betrothed to Joseph, who we've already established in the first section that he's from the house and lineage of David. And so she becomes pregnant before they came together. And the continuation of the marriage, there's a focus here on this, in this particular section, the necessity of the continuation of their marriage. Because that, would be, that was required to establish Jesus' legal Davidic lineage. And so there's a problem here, because she's become pregnant, they haven't come together yet, so it would seem by all appearances that she's committed adultery, and what was customary, the Old Testament law under that, the punishment for adultery was death by stoning. The custom in this time was that there would be a public trial, that she would be shamed, and that he would divorce her. So Matthew has to resolve this problem. The Lord has to resolve this problem, and Matthew's telling us about it. And he happens to be the only one of the gospel writers who explains this particular event in this particular way and how that problem was resolved for Joseph. And it's interesting to note that even there's this thinking in line of the, and in terms of Matthew's focus on Jesus being of the line of David, he notes that even the angel salutes him, Joseph, as the son of David. He said, Joseph, son of David. Why does this matter? Why does it matter? The whole thing with David, why is that important? Why, who, who cares? See, it's easy for us to read that and, and not see the significance, the particular significance of it. But a Jewish reader would have read that and the full import of it would have come home immediately. Because the, it signifies the criticality and the importance of God keeping his covenant with David throughout the generations. And this was a repeated theme. They would have been, the, the Jewish people would have been well familiar with this and all of the prophecies and all the history of it. And so, it's notable because God keeps his covenant here with David. And we see the ultimate fulfillment of it in Christ. And I would refer you back to the psalm that we read at the beginning. That highlights that covenant with David. In Psalm 89. He goes through and gives all the explanation and provision of it and then it says if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity the stripes but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips so it's important it's an everlasting covenant and Matthew's very concerned here with how that's fulfilled in Christ. 
And so we come to this familiar verse 23. I wonder how many times we've each heard it. It's one of the most common and popular prophetic verses that's given at Advent and Christmas time. But I want us to look at it a little more deeply, particularly in its original context. Before we do that, I would note in verse 22, it says, right before he gets to that prophecy, he says, giving the actual prophecy, in explaining it, he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Well, all what? Well, if you look at, in verse 18, it says, the birth of Jesus Christ took place. It's the same phrase, took place in this way. So everything concerning the birth of Christ, everything leading up to it, all the particulars surrounding it, all of that took place in the way that it did so that this prophecy might be fulfilled. Or you could even take it back further and say the whole going all the way back to David and all the way back to Abraham, all of that took place. All the lineage, everything that happened to each person in all of Israel's history and the way that the Lord designed it and caused the events to be played out, all of that took place that this might be fulfilled. Or even going back to the beginning of time from creation, the very beginning, all things that took place have taken place to reach this particular moment in history and so that this particular prophecy could be fulfilled in this particular way. So I want to go back with you and look at the original historical context of that prophecy. It's from Isaiah 7, and we're going to read verses 1 through 17. It's commonly assumed that that prophecy was immediately and explicitly messianic that it was specifically talking about Christ when Isaiah gave it to Ahaz. But no textual critical scholars agree that that was the case. Almost all consider that it was a prophecy that had an immediate fulfillment in Ahaz's time and that that was the primary substance of what Isaiah was saying there. Now that is significant and we'll come back to that. I say that not to rob the prophecy of its glory but to give it its appropriate glory because it's actually more glorious if you understand it that way. Many Old Testament prophecies were like that. There was an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, immediate right there in that context and then there was a shadowy fulfillment later on. But let's look at the immediate. It says... Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. Ephraim just means the northern kingdom of Israel. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now Isaiah had named his son Shear Jashub, Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. 
And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as the king in the midst of it. Because of that, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Raisin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Now that's a lot. We're going to try to go through it as briefly as possible and give some explanation to everything that's going on there. So during the time of Ahaz, the, the nation of Israel had already split, had been split for about 195 years. And there was the northern kingdom of Israel, also referred to as Ephraim. Then there was the southern kingdom of Judah. Ahaz was ruling as king over the southern kingdom. He was of the house of David. That phrase, the house of David, is significant and is mentioned three times in this passage. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. You can go look at 2 Kings 16. It's in Chronicles as well, and it explains all the things he did. He set up high places. He offered offerings to ba the Baals. He, he burned his sons in fire to Molech in the valley of the son of Hinnom. All these things, just complete wickedness and evil towards the Lord. So that was Ahaz, and the time frame of this was around 735, between 735 and 732 B.C., and it was during the Syro-Ephraimite War, the northern kingdom, Ephraim, was in league with Syria. So there's Ephraim and Syria are in league against the Assyrians. That's Pekah of Israel and Rezin of Syria, against the Assyrians. They had successfully besieged Judah, the southern kingdom, already, and now they were seeking to come to Jerusalem, the city in particular, and to overthrow Ahaz and install their own king because they didn't want Ahaz to go and join with the Assyrians and come against them. So what's Ahaz's response to all this? It says in verse 2, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now this was a fulfillment of the warning that was previously given before the people came into the land in Leviticus chapter 26 when the Lord gives, he gives the rewards for obedience 
and the warnings for disobedience, the blessing for obedience, the cursing for disobedience. He gives those things, and it says, Leviticus 26, 36, he prophesies all, gives them warning of all this destruction that will happen if they turn their hearts away from the Lord and they go after idols. All these things will happen. They'll, destruction, desolation, disaster. And then it says, and as for those of you who are left, so it's already talking, the exile was prophesied, and all these things, they'd be taken away. The land would be deserted. As for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight, and they shall flee as one flees from the sword, and they shall fall when none pursues. The sound of the driven leaf. Isn't that what it says? The heart of Ahaz and his people shook like trees in the wind. And they were terrified because they knew that they had been disobedient continually to the Lord. They'd gone after the Baals. They had committed all this idolatry. And so they were terrified because they didn't have the confidence and the assurance of the presence of the Lord with them. So they're terrified of these enemies coming. That's his response, okay? But even in that, even as the Lord is carrying out those warnings for disobedience that he gave, and he's punishing them, there's mercy in this. There's mercy in this because Isaiah, Isaiah comes to Ahaz. Ahaz doesn't seek him out. Isaiah seeks Ahaz out and delivers this word from the Lord. And the first thing he does is issue a command. It's a fourfold command. He says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. So he issues a command and then he gives an assurance. These two kings, they are but smoldering stumps of firebrands. It was almost like an insult. It was like they're, they're nothing to worry about. In verses, verses 7 through 9, it's a poem. You'll see it, depending on your translation, you'll see it offset. It's a poem. And the point of the poem is, aren't all this grand, these two grand kingdoms, aren't they just men? He reduces them down as you go through the flow of it. The head of Damascus is Razan. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. That's it. It's two men. It's just two men. They're just men. That's what God's saying. They're just men, and their boundaries have been fixed. These are their kingdoms. Ephraim, Samaria, Damascus of Syria. These are their kingdoms. That's it. And they've been fixed. Their boundaries and borders have been fixed by God. They won't pass them. This is, the whole thing is intended to be an assurance to Ahaz, to trust the Lord. And then he gives them, he delivers a warning. So he issues a command, he gives an assurance, and then he delivers this warning at the end. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. One commentator says, if Ahaz refuses to trust, he has no future. That's the import of that sentence. It's actually a, a turn of phrase in the Hebrew it's the, the, when it says, not, if you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. It's ta-aminu, te-aminu. Ta-aminu, te-aminu. And the, the literal translation could be trust or bust. Trust or bust. That's a pretty simple way to encapsulate our dealings with the Lord. Trust or bust. That's it. And that's what Isaiah was saying to Ahaz here. Trust or bust. So then, after this, he offers 
a confirmation. And he says, he tells him, ask a sign. Now, most of the time, when signs were sought in the scriptures, it was an evil thing because people were putting God to the test and not believing signs he'd already given, not believing words that he'd already spoken, wanting some other assurance besides what he's already given. But the Lord here invites him. He says, ask a sign of me. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Now, this is a great condescension. It's a great condescension done in love and faithfulness. And it's not towards Ahaz necessarily, but it's towards the house of David in general. Remember the covenant. Remember the covenant. So the Lord's remembering his covenant towards the house of David. And that's why he's doing this. Not for Ahaz's sake. It's a great and tender mercy towards Ahaz, even though it wasn't done for his sake. So how does he respond? How does he respond? He refuses to ask. And he does it under the pretense of piety. He says, he says I, I don't want to test the Lord. But it's no piety to refuse the merciful condescension of God's invitation. He twists the scriptures to his own destruction because that, that was a command given previously. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But he takes that and he twists it. He says, oh, no, I couldn't possibly ask. It's this fake kind of humility. There's no way I could ask. But it's not humble to refuse to do what the Lord says, even when it goes against our sensibilities. But this was the opposite error that the Jews did during Christ's time. It says that they demanded a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. The only sign that will be given to it is the sign of Jonah. Okay, but they already had the ultimate sign. They had Christ himself. They had all of these other confirmations from the Lord. So there's two ways that you can spurn him. You can spurn him by asking for a sign when he's already given something that's of assurance, or you can spurn him when he says, ask me for this, and you say, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't possibly do that. Now, why did Ahaz do this? He did it because he was, he was already in a habit of not trusting God, and he had already joined himself to the Baals and go, gone off to idol worship and all this, like we already saw, and like it talks about in, in Kings and Chronicles. He had already purposed in his heart what he was going to do. He was going to go to the king of Assyria and ask for help. But still the Lord in mercy offers this opportunity, and he rejects it. He rejects it. He already made up his mind. And so it becomes a sign of God's choosing. The Lord himself gives a sign. It's almost like he's, the, the, the Lord is saying, fine, I'll do it. I'll, I'll teach you how it's done. It's kind of, I don't know if it's intended cheeky, but you can almost sense a little bit of cheekiness in there when he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Because you failed to ask for it, the Lord will do it himself. It's reminiscent of Isaiah 59 where it says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. 
You see, when God chooses a sign, it always surpasses one contrived by men. And so it is here. So there's an immediate fulfillment to this sign. Most scholars believe that this Emmanuel child was one of the children of either Ahaz's concubines or one of his wives. And it was a sign that was intended to confirm that the plans of Syria and the plans of Ephraim would come to naught, just like the Lord had said. But there was yet a future fulfillment of this sign, as we know. The sign would be for the ultimate preservation of the house of David through the line of Ahaz. Again, it wouldn't have been understood at this time as being explicitly messianic, and that's pretty obvious because of the context after the sign is given when it says, before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So there was something going to happen with that sign in particular during that time. So what are the consequences of Ahaz's unbelief? J.A. Motyer says, explains it this way, the separation of Ephraim reduced David's kingdom to a tiny remainder. So that was back, that was back in 1 Kings 12 when the kingdom split originally. It was a tiny remainder. David, the line of David just had Judah. The coming of the king of Assyria would take even this from David. The semblance of monarchy would survive for another century, but the reality would never be restored. This was indeed the case. From the time when Ahaz disbelieved, he and David's descendants reigned as puppet kings by courtesy first of Assyria and then of Babylon until the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. extinguished the kingdom and monarchy altogether so that when Emmanuel was born, the heir to David's throne was an unknown carpenter in Nazareth. It's amazing. Although the Davidic dynasty appeared to be in decline and eventually destroyed, quietly it continued on, unseen, in God's way, until the birth of Christ, its ultimate fulfillment. Again, the psalm. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him, that's David, my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. So punishment, yes. Punishment, yes. Removal, no. Even if it appears so, and it did appear so. You see this over and over in the Old Testament, the continual remembrance of the Davidic covenant. Over and over it says the phrase in the Old Testament, for David my servant's sake. For the sake of David my servant. So you had all these these men doing evil, like Ben talked about so many, most of the kings that came from David's line were evil, and they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord continued to remain faithful and work in spite of them because he was being faithful to his covenant to David. For David, my servant's sake, I'll do this. It's the covenant faithfulness of God. 
So now let's go back to Matthew. Do you see it? Do you see the, the grandeur of it? God used this one man, Ahaz, his unbelief as an occasion to give one of the greatest signs of his covenant faithfulness. And the fullness of the sign wouldn't be realized until over 700 years later. It wouldn't have been understood, even in those days when Christ was born, it wouldn't have been widely understood that, it was, that that was that prophecy being fulfilled. In fact, it's possible that Matthew was the first one to get the revelation that this was what it meant. If he wasn't the first, he was at least among the first. And it makes you wonder when it was revealed to Matthew. At some point, Matthew had a moment, just like we talked about in the beginning, where he went, oh! And he realized, and he realized that that prophecy from Isaiah was concerning the Lord Jesus. I think maybe this is fun speculative conjecture that it happened at the end of Luke when Jesus was visiting them, appearing to his disciples after the resurrection. He said, these are the words I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We don't know what he said. We don't know how many scriptures he went through. We don't know which ones they were, but it could have been that one. In any case, at some point he revealed it to Matthew. Matthew's is the only gospel that references that Isaiah prophecy explicitly and applies it to Christ. It was one that came, a prophecy that came from God, it was ultimately about God, and it was fulfilled directly by God. This is the cosmic plan and the purpose of God. Larger than any one man's wickedness, he's not obstructed by the failures of men. Larger than even my personal salvation, he's not concerned with just me. Longer than just the current generation, he's not bound by any measure of time. We think, this is how we think about God. We think, my time, my lifetime, my generation. But God's thinking, he knows the end from the beginning. He could be thinking a thousand years from now. And so he was here. There's intentional obscurity. There's a lot of study about this. Uh, if you look at the word used for virgin in the Isaiah prophecy, it's, it's fair to translate it that way. In Isaiah, but it's not necessary because it didn't necessarily mean a virgin who had not known a man. It could have meant just a young woman of marriageable age. And there's been a lot of argument about that as to whether it did mean truly a virgin or just a young woman. And some people say, well, it didn't actually mean a virgin, so that Christ didn't necessarily fulfill that prophecy. But I think that Isaiah leaves it intentionally obscure. That the Lord does that. He, he leaves things like that intentionally obscure, just like people t talk about, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Let's have a debate about who. But the point isn't who wrote it. The point is, why didn't God tell us? There's something that he wants us to see and to know from what he left out, from what he left intentionally obscure. And so we should be asking not what's the answer, but why has God not given it plainly? And so it is here, the, the way that it's written by Isaiah allows it to be both fulfilled in the time of Ahaz by the, the, one of his concubines or wives giving birth 
to a son, but not being truly a virgin, just a young woman, and it allows for the further, more precise and specific messianic fulfillment of Christ being born of a true virgin who had never known a man. Both were fulfilled. Now remember that phrase. This is incredible. Remember the phrase that was used in Isaiah, that the word of the Lord comes to Ahaz through Isaiah, and he says, ask a sign deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now God did indeed give his own sign deep as Sheol and high as heaven. Consider the arranging of men via Herod's census. He reshuffled an entire region just for the specific purpose that that prophecy might be fulfilled, that the sign might be fulfilled. Consider the arranging of heaven via the star of Bethlehem. It wasn't just one star. It was a, an entire rearranging of the cosmos. And a very, there's an incredible movie about this where it talks about how it was a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence of the way that literally all the planets and stars aligned in this specific fashion during this one time in history to create that star. Deep as Sheol, high as heaven. Consider the arranging of history for Christ's death on the cross during Roman rule. That was a very specific and limited time in history when that was done. And the Lord arranged it just so. Consider the rending of the heavens when Christ came down at his birth. Consider the rending of the veil leading into the holiest at his death. Consider the descending of Christ into Sheol after his death. And the ascending of Christ into heaven after his resurrection. Deep as Sheol, high as heaven. And if you read through Philippians 2, you see there that the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity humbled himself and came down to the lowest of lows. The highest of highs to the lowest of lows. He humbled himself by becoming a servant and was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Deep as Sheol, high as heaven. But that's not all. The substance of this sign would continue on even after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. God with us, Emmanuel. If you look at the very last verse of Matthew, it's a familiar verse. And the very end, he says this, Jesus says it, Behold, I am with you. I'm with you. Always. Even to the end of the age. What a poetic way for Matthew to end his gospel. Hearkening back to its beginning, where he illuminates that sign from Isaiah. It begins, God with us. And it ends, God with us. So the sign was fulfilled not only in Christ's coming, but also in his going. His presence continuing through the Spirit whom he would send from the Father. You can go and read John 14 where he talks about that. Him going away and sending the Spirit 
I will not leave you alone. I won't leave you comfortless. I will come to you. I'll send the Spirit from my Father. You've known him. He's been with you. He shall be in you. Jesus came to dwell with us in the flesh so that he might save us from our sins, return to heaven, and then come to dwell in us by his Spirit. God with us. God with us. This was his intention from the beginning of time all the way to the end. You see it all throughout the scriptures. From the very beginning, the Lord breathed his spirit into man's body. It says that he formed Adam from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into him the breath of life, the breath and spirit, the same word there, and man became a living soul. So it was the presence of God through his spirit that brought man to life originally. Adam and Eve walked and talked with the Lord in the garden. The Lord promised to be with Jacob, the father of Israel, in all his sojournings. We went over that in Genesis when we preached through that. He says in Genesis 28, 15, Behold, I am with you. This was when he appeared in the dream to Joseph. I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised. He promised to be with Moses. Moses said, who am I that that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, but I will be with you. We see it in the exodus from Egypt. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. We see it going into the promised land. He said to Moses in Exodus 33, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. We see it during their sojournings, the children of Israel in the wilderness. And this this was the reason that the Lord commanded them to build a tabernacle. Let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. He promised to be with Joshua. It says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord Your God is with you wherever you go. You'll have good success, it says in that passage also. He was with King David. It says when David was anointed, right after David was anointed by Samuel as king, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then... A couple of chapters later, it says Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. We know that the temple of Solomon and all the temples after that really were just like the tabernacle, the most prominent fixture in the city. It was the focal point which represented God's presence because that was his dwelling place there behind the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant. He sat between the cherubim. Just as we covered the incarnation of Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God with us, God with us, God with us, this repeated refrain, repeated throughout history. This is God's purpose to dwell with his people. But then think about this. We just looked at this a few weeks ago 
in 1 Thessalonians, the comfort that he gives to the Thessalonians at the end of chapter 4, he says, then we who are alive, is talking about the second coming of Christ, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, that's those who have fallen asleep, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Wow. And we see it. Jesus foretold of this in John 14 when he said he was going to prepare a place. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. We see it finally at the conclusion of time in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's almost the very end of the Bible. That's God's purpose. That was his purpose from the beginning, to be Emmanuel, God with us, a God with his people. And though we wrecked it and destroyed it through sin, continually throughout the generations, sin upon sin upon sin, and we know that God can't dwell or be in the presence of sin, but he was intent on finding a way to dwell with his people, and so he sent, he came to dwell with his people that he might truly dwell with his people. He came to dwell bodily and make the appropriate and requisite sacrifice so that he could really and truly dwell with us in the fullest and most intimate way because of his atonement. How do we respond to such a glorious truth? I mean, what can we really do besides worship and fall down and marvel at these mysteries that the Lord's hidden? Doesn't it make you wonder what other things he's hidden? What things, see, things that are, that are mysteries now become marvels later. So it was with this prophecy. It was a mystery at the time, but to us it's a marvel. What things like that has God given us in his word that are mysteries now that it will become great marvels later? So we worship is the appropriate response, but there's another response. There's another response. Not to spurn the sign given, but walking, walk in a manner worthy of it until it's consummated bodily at the resurrection. We respond in this way from 2 Corinthians 7 after Paul is talking about being the temple of the living God and the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit at the end of chapter 6. He says at the beginning of chapter 7, since we have these promises, beloved, this is how we respond. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body 
and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let us honor him who came to dwell with us bodily by cleansing the temple of our hearts and making room for him to dwell in us spiritually. That's the response. That's the response. I was so convicted of this. Elijah, you guys can come back up. I was so convicted of this this morning when I was meditating on it and thinking on it. What's the appropriate response to something like this? And I thought about striving against sin, fighting against sin, putting to death the deeds of the body. And I thought about all the motivations for that and all the reasons that we do that. We do it for a lot of reasons, good reasons. We do it because we don't want to experience the consequences of sin. We do it because we don't want to experience the shame and guilt of sinning. We do it because we love God's law. We want to walk in obedience to it out of love for Christ. A, a lot of and other reasons, other good reasons. But the principal reason ought to be to be cleansed, to, be, to, to have a cleansed heart for him to accomplish his purpose. His purpose, his goal is to dwell with me in fullness, to have possession of my earthly vessel. That's why he came and he shed his blood and he rose again from the dead and he ascended on high, leading captive a host of captives and he poured out his spirit so that we might be cleansed and, and be a fit place for him to dwell as he's building us up together into a temple. So who are we to hold on to idols and to sins that we love and prevent him from achieving his purpose in us? That's the response. This is why we fight and strive against sin and put to death the deeds of the body and we put off the old and put on the new so that he can be with us and we can be with him and we can have the intimacy that he seeks. Did you know that? That he seeks intimacy with us? That's what Jesus said when he was talking to the woman at the well. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. He is seeking for people to come in to his dwelling place and for people who will prepare a place for him to come in to our dwelling place so that we can be with him and he can be with us as we prepare for it to be that way at last on the last day. So I was praying this morning, and I encourage you to pray that the Lord would search your heart for any defilement of body and spirit that's preventing him from having a, a clean place. You know what they did? What they did after all those evil kings, they would set up the high places, they would defile the, the ornaments and the fixtures of the temple, and then they would bring idols in there. They would offer wrong sacrifices. Well, what they would do, they would have a king would come along like Hezekiah or like Josiah, and they would institute reforms, and they would start destroying all the high places, and they would start cleansing the temple. And isn't that what Jesus did when he came in the flesh? He went in and he cleansed the temple. And so that's what we must do. That's the appropriate response to such a glorious sign when God says, I am God with you, and I want to be with you. So we ought to cleanse ourselves. Ask the Lord to search you, to know you, to try your heart and to know your thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in you and lead you in the way everlasting. As you think on these things and 
continue to meditate on this glorious truth. It's a both, it's a both and. It makes you bow and worship and break with conviction at the same time. It ought to. Let's pray. Father, we, what can we say to you about these things? What kind of thanks and praise can proceed from our lips that's worthy of you and that's fit for such a glorious sign as you gave in sending your own son as the fulfillment of that prophecy? We praise you and we thank you for your tender mercies towards us that notwithstanding all of our sin and wickedness and rebellion against you, that your desire is to be with us, for us to be your people, for you to be our God. We rejoice in that this Christmas season. And I pray that you stir up in every heart a worshipful awe and meditation on these things. And I pray that you'd come by your spirit says that when he comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We pray that you'd convict us of any defilement of body and spirit that's preventing you from pouring out the fullness of your presence in us and enjoying you, walking in the light of your countenance, the joy of your presence, and enjoying the pleasures that are at your right hand forevermore. Convict us and cleanse us, and may we be perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord until the day of your coming again. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.
just Lord to number our days on earth and give us more wisdom in the secret heart as you display amazing grace through Jesus Christ for us teach us You guys can grab a seat. Elijah, you're so tall. Um, I want you to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to us because it's important for us to realize, even if you're not here on a Sunday, we talked about this last week, if you're not here and maybe you missed last Sunday and so you don't hear these echoes of last week and this week, um, but I keep hearing that word that God gave to Ahaz in Isaiah 7, if you're not firm in faith, then you won't be firm at all. If, if we don't respond to this, then it, it, the context of that was, look, wh who are these? They're just men. They're just, they have boundaries. I've set their boundaries. And what in your life keeps you from a faith that looks like surrender to this king? That looks like giving God the access to you, the residence in you, that he sent Jesus to take up. This is the whole point of this message today is God came to dwell in his people and to have his rightful place. So that we began in a garden with God and we ruined it and it all ends in God redeeming us and making us new and bringing us back into his presence. But... We don't have to wait until that day to live life with God today. And it looks like, Jesus, what in my life is like these kings, these things that I fear, these things that keep me from a real faith that looks like surrender? 
the things that actually keep you from living life with God, where if, it's, if we say it's trust or bust, what makes your life feel like it's mostly busting? And that's what we're inviting God. God, clear these things out, these things that I fear, whether it's trial or heartache or financial hardship or loneliness or whatever it is for you this holiday season. This is a, a huge invitation from God to us. Let us cleanse ourselves of defilement of flesh and spirit. That's not just ethereal stuff. That's real things in our life. But it also is unbelief. It, you may not think of all these big things that God is asking you to clear out, but your day-to-day -day life looks like distraction. It looks like fearing the kings of these nations. And God says, why do you fear man whose breath is in his nostrils? Fear me. Worship me. I sent Christ so that you will always be with me. And that's just not some ethereal hope for tomorrow. That's for right now. Not for next year, not for your New Year's resolutions. That's when we wake up, we cry out with our hearts, God, satisfy us with your love. Let me not be satisfied by all these lesser things. We want to be a people who are strong in faith and who give God the access that he died to bring us. If we have these promises of God dwelling with his people, then let's ask God, Lord, search and try me. What keeps me from walking with you by faith? Because if we're not strong in faith, it's impossible to please him. It's impossible to walk with him. It's impossible for God to come and live his life in us and through us if we are not giving him the access by faith. And what a wonder in the gospel that Jesus said, you don't, you don't earn your way into it. You don't work your way for it. Faith looks like surrender. Jesus, you are the son of David. Have your way in me. Be preeminent in my life. Not just my, my main thing, my only thing. So what an invitation for us this week. I, I love, we're reminded all the time that your repentance doesn't look like some rehab plan, some journey back. It looks like a three-foot drop to your knees to say, Jesus, I want to want you. I want you to have first place in my life and to be my life itself and for you to me with you and you with me right now this is eternal life knowing him and his son whom he sent um sometimes if you're looking to get back into the word maybe you're in a dry season or you've gotten away and you're looking at what does this repentance of living life with god look like well it looks like getting alone with him and at least starting there and we are working through a devotional this Advent season as a church, um, it's $5 in the back. If you don't have five bucks, just take one as a gift. You're only five days behind, which for a lot of you, like some of you have had this book for two weeks and you're still five days behind. So you're not really behind. If you haven't started yet, go ahead and pick up a copy. Um, we're working through the book of Matthew as a church and it's the same content as what's here. So. I think it's probably five to ten minutes a day and will facilitate your pursuit of God this Christmas season. Um, and let me pray for us as we head out. And I want to invite you to pray for Mitch Pinion. Mitch uh, was a pastor here for, it's hard to believe, only four years. And he's been gone now, pastoring in Atlanta for four years. Mitch is right now being hospitalized. He's got a... Uh, uh, 
blood circulation condition that I don't really fully understand, but it's got him in the hospital and in pretty bad shape. And he's got doctors that are working around the clock to help him figure out a diagnosis to get proper medication. But we really need for the Lord to touch and heal his body. And so I want to pray for Mitch and invite you to be praying for Mitch um, and ask the Lord for a fresh surrender from us as a church. Father, thank you for this glorious promise that Christ came so that you would bring us to God. And we're not just waiting until we're there physically. You came to bring us to yourself now so that we have confidence to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would have that from us, that we would get up from the place where we have been content to live with a measure of you instead of surrendering fully to you and living life in your presence as your people. So Spirit, would you come and search us and try us and see if there be any hurtful way in us and let us press on as a people, not content just to put off what is unpleasing to you, but seeking to walk with you by the power of your Spirit so that we may live in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of our calling, and that you would be preeminent in our lives. And Lord, we lift up our brother Mitch to you and many others who are sick. I know there are many who couldn't gather here today because of stomach bugs or other issues. And Lord, we are reminded that we live in a broken world, a world that was broken by our own sinfulness, and you came to restore it and to make it new. And Right now, we live in the not yet. We live with the longing, the groaning of creation, longing for the redemption of the sons of God and to be with you forever in your presence when you cry out, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and I am making all things new. So we look to that day with hope and with longing, and we are asking for you to bring a healing touch that's a foretaste, that's a sign and a pointer to the fact that that day is coming. And so would you touch Mitch's body and bring healing to him? And I pray that you would uh, give both he and Audrey just a, a real faith in you and a good comfort in you, uh, knowing that you are in control and that you are good. I pray that you would stir up faith in their church and surround them with people who love you and who are strong in faith uh, to point them to you. And Lord, would you give the doctors wisdom and your good leading. Father, make us a surrendered people. I pray that this would resound through us, that you gave us this glorious sign. High as the highest of heaven and deeper than Sheol, that Christ is all. And you came so that we would be yours. Lord, would you make us not grow weary in unbelief, but strong in faith, knowing that he who promised is faithful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a sweet week. Love you all.